All right. My name is Wade. I'm the pastor here, and I love uh, this Wednesday night opportunity to teach God's Word, and we have a great time together. We have just been working our way through the Psalms, kind of uh, Psalm by Psalm, chapter by chapter. There are 150 Psalms, and we are uh, on Psalm 82, so we are making our way uh, through. So, to orient you a little bit tonight about what's going on, some changes on our campus, uh, good changes, uh, but we have preschool ministry takes place on Wednesday nights, we have children's ministry, we have student ministry, and we also have our uh, worship choir that prepares for uh, Sunday mornings. They, they rehearse and get ready uh, and always do a great job. But because of growth, we've had to switch our choir and our students. So the choir used to meet in there in the, the, the choir loft, if you will, and get ready on Wednesday nights, kind of the same time I was teaching in here. And the youth were upstairs in what we call the, the youth suite, but they have outgrown that area, which is a good thing. Amen? Uh, they were you know hitting 80 plus, 90 students in there, and it was just, uh, it was just crammed. They were crammed in there. And so we've made a switch, so the youth are going to be in the big room now, uh, which is awesome, and the choir is going to be upstairs, so you may hear some new noises, okay? <laughs> so we're, going, we're kind of figuring it all out, how it's going to go, but you may hear some, some, some uh, noises come from there that are youth, and from up there you'll hear the choir singing probably, uh, but we're going to have a great time uh, tonight. So again, that's a great problem to have. Thank you again for everyone that had a, a hand in Discipleship Now this weekend, which is a youth event. Starts on Friday night, goes all day Saturday and into Sunday. It is a major, major deal. Um, uh, we divide the kids up by gender and by age, and they get in groups, and they stay in host homes, and they do some projects together. They have Bible studies together. They come for big uh, for for a corporate worship, all the groups come together for worship and have some activities, and it's really a neat time of of just our students stepping away from the the busyness of life and saying we're going to carve out some time to focus on the Lord. That's what this past weekend was. Our student pastor Derek does a great job organizing that, and I've heard good things from uh, that weekend. But it takes an army of volunteers. So to every driver, everyone who cooked a meal or a dish, everyone who opened up their home, you should get some kind of special in heaven. There'll be some sort of special medal for those of you that opened up your uh, home to house, you know, like, you know, 18 uh, eighth graders or, you know, 14 ninth graders or, you know, just kind of just, it's just crazy. But uh, thank you for doing that. And it lets our students know that they matter to us. And uh, we are uh, focused on pouring what we know and believe uh, into the next generation because uh, they're going to be the, the leaders of the church. And so we uh, want to prioritize that. So thank you, everyone who prayed, had a hand in that. Uh, speaking of prayer and other big events, coming up on February 10th is Night to Shine. Be here at our building on a Friday night. It's a huge deal. It is Night to Shine is basically a prom for people with special needs, just a way for us to uh, love on folks that God sends our direction and uh, celebrate them and the fact that they are uh, special in the eyes of our great God and uh, they come and have a great time and they are treated royally. I mean, uh, they get here and we feed them a special meal and we have a prom type atmosphere and they uh, wear tuxes and dresses. Uh, some of you have been up 
here this week fitting uh, folks with, with dresses and making alterations. I saw some uh, some ladies out there today just just their their head down working on the sewing machines, uh, trying to alter the the dresses and get them right for the participants. I walked up to the table and said, "Hey, I need a uh, I have a pair of pants that need hemming. Can I bring those here?" Uh, and they kind of glared at me. But anyway, uh, it, it's uh, it, it's a it's a big deal. It takes a lot of workers, uh, and uh, we're very excited about it. So here's what you can do. If you go to that table right behind the back couch right there, on the other side of that back couch, uh, there's a Night to Shine table. There is a prayer guide on there. You can get that and begin to pray specifically over this event. One thing you need to be aware of is that we gather everybody, uh, the participants, their families. We gather everybody together, and we share the gospel. We, we, we preach Jesus and uh, make that a theme of the evening because we're doing it all in Jesus' name. And uh, so you can begin to pray over that and pray that God uh, would use that. Uh, but it's a big undertaking, so pray. We have another meeting, if you're interested in being a volunteer, another meeting coming up this Sunday afternoon uh, where you can show up and figure out uh, where you can uh, perhaps plug in. So you can get a prayer guide on that back table. Also, there, is, there are some things back there that you can write notes to participants so go check that out, and there's some instructions so you can write little encouraging notes and uh, go from there. So uh, we are excited about Night to Shine. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. It'll be our third year doing it, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big deal. Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Hey, one more thing as you're turning there. Uh, this Sunday morning, we're continuing our study, uh, Habits of Grace, our series, Habits of Grace. And I'll be preaching on prayer, and so I want to encourage you to be here for that. I'm, I'm going to try to be very, very practical and basically share with you some things I'm learning about prayer or have learned over the years. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've been a pastor now. I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I've been preaching the Bible for that long and, and been a Christian since I was nine. Uh, and I feel like in some ways I'm just now learning how to pray. Does that surprise you? Now, that doesn't mean I haven't been a person of prayer, and I've tried to prioritize prayer in my life, but I'm, I'm just now learning some things about what prayer looks like, and I, and I feel like I have so much farther to go. I, I feel like the disciples, that when they saw the prayer life of Jesus, they said, teach, teach us to pray, teach us to pray. And so we're going to get together on Sunday, and I'm going to share some prayer principles with you from God's Word and give you some very practical things to help you and encourage you to make prayer one of the habits of your life. Remember, we're talking about habits of grace. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about being in the Word, reading the Bible, making that a habit of your life. And this week, we're going to talk about prayer. The next week, we're going to talk about the habit of belonging to the body of Christ, the habit of being involved in the church and what that looks like. And I'm excited about that as well. And then after that, uh, in February, we will begin a study through the book of Galatians on Sunday mornings, line by line, verse by verse. Travis asked me today, how long is it going to take us to get through Galatians? I said, probably about a year, about six chapters, and we're going to go, we're going to go nice and slow, and, and the, the Pauline epistles just lend themselves to just kind of slowing down and digging in. I mean, there are certain words, you can preach a whole sermon just on some of the words there in uh, that book, and so I'm very excited about it. I'm, I'm working on the Habits of Grace uh, series, but I'm also working on Galatians at the same time. I'm kind of chomping at the bit, so I'm ready to get started on Galatians, and I trust God's going to use uh, that study in the life of our church. But tonight we are in Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Can everybody hear me good? 
nice and clear. There's a little, I don't know if you see a little bit of a change, but instead of the big speakers up here, we, we've uh, wired it through the speakers above you, so it's a more gentle, balanced sound. How many of you had no clue that was happening? How many of you just, how many of you didn't notice there weren't speakers up here? You just didn't, you didn't notice? Okay, all right, well, well, there are, okay? So you can thank your worship pastor, Travis Bly, and uh, Ben for, for figuring that one out and, and getting it going, so... Psalm 82, Psalm 82, tonight we're going to talk about government, politics, sound good? All right, like I told you a few weeks ago, we're, I'm going to just, we're going to figure it all out tonight. All things political, we will leave here tonight having it all figured out, okay? Uh, but we are going to see that God has some things to say about government and and it's important to see this in this psalm and in other places in uh, the Scripture. But before we begin, let me just pray, and we will get started. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're grateful, Lord, for your goodness and your grace, your mercy, your love. We're grateful, Lord, for your presence in this place. And God, we ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding, open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the truths of Scripture and understand the truths of Scripture and Lord, have a, an inclination to apply the truths of Scripture. So, Lord, just have your way in our midst. Touch our hearts, change our lives, encourage us, strengthen us, Lord, please. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Psalms are uh, a collection of hymns. They're, they're songs that were written and designed to be used in corporate worship. And the Psalms, all 152 of them, have... Uh, some common themes. And I believe that Dr. Kendall easily gets to the heart of, of the major themes of these psalms when he writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so uh, Dr. Easley reminds us that the psalms are about trusting God and praising God no matter the circumstances. And you'll see that theme woven throughout uh, the pages of the Psalms. And John Piper reminds us that these Psalms are hymns. He writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions, this is an important phrase, our emotions are massively important. You know, God's the one that made us emotional creatures, emotional beings. And I believe that's one of the reasons that we love the Psalms so much, we connect with them so well, is because we resonate with the, the varied emotions we see the psalmist dealing with in these chapters. So we've made it to Psalm 82, and we're thinking biblically tonight about government. Thinking biblically about government. So let's read it together. Look there with me. Psalm 82, it says, a Psalm of Asaph. Verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. We'll talk about what that word gods means in a moment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge 
the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Psalm 82 gives you and me some food for thought as the Lord addresses some of the rulers of his people Israel who were failing. They weren't doing a good job as leaders. And so God is addressing them in this psalm and reminding them of some very important realities. And we're going to discuss those realities together tonight. And there are four of them. In this psalm, number one, we see the ordination of earthly rulers. The ordination of earthly rulers. It says there in verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Say law. Now, we need to interpret what is meant by that uh, phrase, in the midst of the gods. Who are the gods? Well, there are different views. Some believe that the, the word gods refers to you know, the false pagan gods in this time that uh, his people were worshiping instead of the one true God. Some believe the God speaks of the angelic realm or even the, the, the demonic realm. Uh, speaking of them as little g gods. Uh, but I believe that this word gods, and this is in your notes, refers to earthly rulers who represent God on the earth. Earthly rulers who represent God on the earth. It uses the word gods there in verse uh, 1, in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. And then in verse 6 it says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. So he calls them gods, but he says, like men, you shall die. I believe this refers to earthly rulers, and I believe Jesus completely clears it up for us, because Jesus quotes this passage. Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 34, John chapter 10, verse 34. A little bit of context, Jesus just said to the religious leaders of the day, I and the Father are one, so he's claiming to be the Son of God. And they didn't like that. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was uh, God on earth. And so they pick up stones, it says, to throw at him. But look what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, Jesus answering them, Is it not written in your law, he quotes Psalm 82 here, I said, you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know, the Bible uses the word gods, referring to another group of people. So why are you so troubled when God himself is on the scene? Why does that bother you so much? And we know that gods, in Psalm 82, refers to the leaders of Israel, because look what he says in verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, watch this, to whom the word of God came. So he's talking of the leaders of Israel. God gave them the, the law, and they were to live and rule according to the law. So the gods in Psalm 82 are the people to whom the word of God came, the rulers of God's people. Everybody see that? That's who the gods are. So keep that in mind. Turn back to Psalm 82. And we can learn now that the word gods refers to earthly rulers who represent God on the earth. 
Warren Wiersbe writes, The gods are not the false gods of the heathen, for such non-existent gods are not Jehovah's judicial representatives on earth. Nor are these gods the holy angels, for angels cannot die. These gods are people who have been given the awesome responsibility of representing the Lord on earth and interpreting and applying his law. Again, going back to the words of Jesus. Jesus made this clear in his quotation of verse 6. So the word gods refers to earthly rulers. So Psalm 82 is talking to rulers who are failing. Now look in this next phrase. Earthly rulers, like the ones in Psalm 82, like the leaders of Israel, are ordained by God. Put in place, raised up by God. So I don't know if I believe that. Turn to Romans 13 with me. New Testament book of Romans. Romans 13, verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. And we'll come back to Romans 13 in a few moments. But it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from who? God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So we should respond to the authority of government because God is the one who instituted that government. So look what it says in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so we are to recognize that government has been put in place by God himself. And if we rebel against the governing authorities, we are rebelling against God because God's the one that put it in place. Uh, let me show you another passage. Turn to Psalm 75. Psalm 75, verse 6. For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes, uh, executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. God's the one that raises up governments and puts down governments. He raises up leaders, puts down leaders. He is in control. Uh, Proverbs says that the the hearts of kings are like channels of water in God's hands. He turns their hearts wherever he wants to turn them. So God rules and reigns over the governing authorities of the day. And we are to respect uh, the rule that is over us. Now, there's always the question, well, what if um, your authority tells you to do something you ought not to do? And that's true in any uh, sphere of life, right? I mean, we have... We have all different levels of authority. What if you, the, those who are in authority over you tell you to do something that is wrong? Well, Peter cleared it up for us over in Acts when Peter said, we must obey God rather than men, right? And so anytime anybody in authority asks you to do something that is ungodly, you always go with God, right? Not with that authority. But insofar as you are living under a, a, a government that God has put in place, you are called to respect those authorities and live under those authorities, the ordination of earthly rulers. God is the one that puts these, these earthly rulers in their place. And so we see that's the first principle from Psalm 82. Here's the second principle. We see not only the ordination of earthly rulers in Psalm 82, we see the responsibility of human rulers. So God's the one that gives them their their position, but they have a responsibility to, to do the right thing. Look what it says in Psalm 82, verse 3. Again, God's speaking to the rulers of Israel. He says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. 
Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Martin Luther writes about these verses. These verses, indeed, the whole psalm, every prince should have painted on the wall of his chamber, on his bed, over his table, on his garments. For here they find what lofty, princely, noble virtues their estate can practice, so that temporal government next to the preaching office is the highest service to God and the most useful service or office on earth. So Martin Luther, the reformer from the 1500s, says that earthly rulers should have this verse up so they see what their responsibilities are. And it says here the responsibilities are twofold. First of all, earthly rulers should promote justice. Verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. When power is corrupted by, by wicked hearts, or when wicked hearts take hold of power, the first thing that happens is the, the defenseless, the weak, are oppressed. You see that in societies all over the world, that when evil people get in power, immediately they begin to oppress those they have power over. And take advantage of them. And you see it all over the place. And, and so the Lord says, listen, if you are a ruler, I've ordained you to be a ruler, and I've given you a responsibility to promote justice. A government should, now tell me if this sounds familiar, this kind of sounds like your uh, civics class in high school. A government should establish, execute, and maintain justice. Amen? That's what a government should do. Establish Execute and maintain justice. So establishing justice would be something like a legislative function, right? Writing uh, and enacting moral laws. That's why we have legislatures on the state level and on the, the national level. Their job is to, uh, to enact uh, and put in place laws that are moral and order uh, a decent society. The execution of justice is the executive function, the one that makes sure that justice is being, uh, is being put into place uh, and overseen. The, the maintaining of justice is the, the judicial function, right? Making sure that justice is being maintained. So we see all of these different areas, and earthly rulers should promote justice. If an earthly ruler is not promoting justice, they're taking advantage of folks rather than helping folks and encouraging folks and lifting up folks, they are not fulfilling their responsibility. Next, Earthly rulers should protect people. Not only promote justice, but protect people. Verse 4. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from who? What's it say? From the hand of the who? Wicked. So earthly rulers are designed by God to protect the innocent from the wicked. And that's reiterated over in Romans 13. So look back with me, Romans 13. Romans 13, again, a Pauline epistle where he's writing on government. Look what he says in verse 3. Romans 13, verse 3. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, if, if you have a good ruler, good people aren't scared of that ruler because they're doing the right thing. But if you have a good ruler, bad people should be very scared of that ruler. They should know that ruler means business. Does that make sense? Look what he goes on to say. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your what? 
good. So the government is God's servant. It's a tool in God's hand for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. And so these verses remind us that, that earthly rulers have a responsibility to protect folks. And they have been ordained by God to use means to protect folks. Did you notice there uh, the word sword is used? <laughs> that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? This isn't like slap on the wrist. This is doing what's required to protect the innocent from the uh, wicked. And so verses like this help us with things like law enforcement. That's why we need law enforcement, right? Folks that will use force, if necessary, to protect the innocent from the wicked. This helps us with, like, um, war. Should we go to war? Uh, Southern Baptists have traditionally, in their statement of faith, held to what's called a just war theory, which says if, if the war is just, if it's carrying out God's purpose of protecting, you know, the, the innocent from the wicked, if there's a just reason behind the war, then it is okay to go to war and use lethal force to protect others. And so we, we've held to a, what we call a just war theory as Southern Baptists, and that's certainly what I ascribe to. That's why we believe in things like incarceration and even death penalty that was ordained by the Lord before the law was put in place. It was a, a creation ordinance so back in the days of Noah that that, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Death penalty is a, a biblical idea. Is it pleasant? No. Is it a deterrent in a society? I think it is. Right? Um, is, is it okay for a government to carry out the death penalty if, if the situation calls for it? According to Romans 13, they are swinging the sword to protect the innocent from the wicked. Now, of course, something like death penalty is very serious and there needs to be um, things in place and appeals processes and it, it's a very serious thing and, and, and we constantly need to be working to make sure it is a reliable um, uh, uh, a reliable um, uh, process in our society. Uh, but uh, I do not believe you're violating the scripture by carrying out the death penalty. You say, well, wait, the Bible says turn the other cheek. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Right? He's talking about in your individual relationships. He's not talking about governments in that passage. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about if, you know, if Steve comes and slaps me, I turn the other cheek and don't slap him back. Right? That's what he means. It's a, in interpersonal relationships, not in the context of governments being a sword in the hands of God to protect the innocent from the wicked. So see, the Bible speaks to all these things. Well, you know, to have these views is not, oh, I'm this or I'm that or I'm Republican or I'm Democrat or I'm conservative or I'm liberal or whatever. Listen, it, the Bible speaks to these things. And, and we can let the Bible guide our thinking and our belief system. We don't have to, to uh, be beholden to any political party or ideology. We're biblical people, right? So we see here the responsibility of human 
rulers. I saw this beautifully illustrated recently. Um, you saw recently there was the, uh, well, last week was the celebration of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And of course, there's a lot of conversation about civil rights on that day and things of that nature. And I watched a clip that somebody posted somewhere, and it was a clip of Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office. And he was talking about the implementation of this day. And he, uh, it, was, it was striking. President of the United States, he called people to personally confront racism. It was powerful. He said, listen, you, you need to, we need to be um, people that if, if, if a friend or family member begins to use racial slurs in our presence, we let them know that's not acceptable. The president said that. He said, hey, it's not going to change unless it changes at the individual level. So you saw the president here promoting justice, speaking against things like racism and, and prejudice, and, and, and defending those who may be harmed by those who have the wrong views. And so that is the responsibility of human rulers, to promote justice, to do the right thing, make sure the right thing is being done in society, and to protect people from harm. Now, here's the third truth we see. And this is kind of un all unfolding. We're heading somewhere with this, okay? But back in Psalm 82, we see the consequences of ungodly rule. What happens when those who have been ordained by God to rule don't rule well? Or don't rule righteously like what was happening in Israel. Look back in Psalm 82. Look in verse 5. He says, They, his, his people, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Why? Because the rulers weren't doing their job. And the, the society was decaying. That's, that's what he's saying here. He, he lays this at the, the doorstep of the rulers. A government, I look here in your notes, a government that does not acknowledge God or his standards of right and wrong is doomed to two perils. A government that does not acknowledge God or his standards of right and wrong is doomed to two perils. Number one, willful ignorance. He says there in verse one, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. In other words, people are choosing to turn their back to the wisdom of God the fear of God, and they are bumping around in the darkness of moral decay, and they're choosing to do that. They're choosing, these leaders are choosing to turn their back upon the tried and true wisdom of God, willful ignorance. William Van Gimmeren, an Old Testament scholar, writes this, darkness here is not the phenomenal experience of the darkness of night, but the word is that of a moral darkness or evil it's like saying the gods, the religious leaders, or the, the civil, civic leaders of Israel are, are uh, wallowing in evil. Why? They turn their back from truth. And when a society, a government, leadership does not acknowledge God or standards of right and wrong, when they begin to call things wrong that are right and right that are wrong, which happens all the time in our culture, they are willfully entering into darkness, ignorance. And crazy things begin to happen. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. So this willful ignorance leads to social disintegration. Look what it says in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. That's ignorance. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. A foundation holds something up, right? That's what a foundation does. And he's saying the foundations are shaken. So the, 
the thing being held up by the foundations, the, the society, is collapsing. The foundations are being shaken, so things begin to disintegrate. Social disintegration. That's what this uh, passage is talking about. Let me show you a couple other pa- uh, passages that speak of this. L- look with me right after the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, verse f- uh, 34 of chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. The Bible says, righteousness exalts what? A nation, but, a, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness lifts a nation up. Sin tears a nation down. Look over in chapter 29, Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous increase, speaking here of leadership, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Why? Social disintegration. When you walk away from God's truth and you choose to bump around in the darkness of moral depravity, your society will begin to come apart at the seams. Which is... What I believe has been happening in America since the roughly the 60s and some of the revolutions that, that occurred during that time have, have turned into headlong rebellion against God. And so willful ignorance leads to social disintegration. So let me give you an example of what social disintegration looks like. On March 23rd, 2016... North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory signed into law the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, commonly known as House Bill 2. It caused a lot of furor, caused a lot of problems, a lot of controversy. So on March 30th, 2017, the legislature partially repealed House Bill 2, removing specifically, listen, the restrictions on restroom use by transgender individuals. That was what was so uh, controversial. And it was so controversial that, uh, you know, Major sporting leagues said, we're not going to come and have our events in your uh, state. Uh, companies began to say, we're not going to do business in your state. And they began to feel a financial cost for that stand. And so the legislature repealed uh, what they deemed the most controversial part of that bill. Now, let's just be clear. What was so controversial about the bill? Listen to this. The language of the bill said, this is what was controversial. The language of the bill said that people at a government-run facility must use bathrooms and locker rooms that correspond to the gender on their birth certificate if the rooms in question are multiple occupancy. So the legislature basically said, listen, if you're in a government facility, this was the first bill that was passed, if you're in a government facility, if your birth certificate says you're a girl, go to the ladies' room. If your birth certificate says you're a guy, go to the men's room. And that was controversial. The NBA said, we're not going to have our all-star game in your state because of that controversial view. How can that be controversial? You see, what happens is we've walked away from, from truth and even common decent sense, and we see social disintegration, crazy things like this happening in our, in our uh, land. So let, let's just think about how absurd that is. Let's just say that I'm at the mall 
in a, in a certain area that practices this. And I'm with my daughter, Abby Faith. And she's got to go to the restroom. And I say, hey, go into this women's room. I'll, I'll wait for you right out here. And she walks in. And then some dude walks in behind her legally. Is that acceptable? No. Uh, heck no. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to me. Should be acceptable to any of us, right? But, but why are we having these discussions? Social disintegration. We've walked away from truth. And, and we're even debating things that are so common sense. Men go to the men's room. Women go to the ladies' room, right? It's not, it's not, it's not rocket science. But that's what's happening. And, and that's just one example of social Disintegration. I could give you many, many, many more, but that's one of the more absurd things that we see in our culture. Let me say it like this. If it seems like with some of these decisions happening, if it seems like we've lost our minds, it's because we have. Turn back to Psalm 82. Read verse 5 again. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken. We are living in verse 5. And, and, I, and I could, I could, there's a lot of things I could say right now, and I'm debating whether I should say them or not, but... We're living in verse 5. We're living in verse 5. We're living in verse 5. We've lost our minds. Um, and... Um, if you're in a, a, a political assembly and you even have to debate partial birth abortion, if it's even a debate, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. That is as gruesome as it gets. That is pure, unadulterated evil. And we have to debate it? And people even vote for it? What? What? Verse 5. We're living in verse 5. It's exactly where we're living. And so, there is a consequence of ungodly rule. Things don't go well when a, a, a nation, uh, a, a people, a, a community, a state, it, it doesn't go well when, when the leaders aren't godly, when they're not righteous, when they don't do the right thing. It affects the people they're trying to lead. And listen, all that I just said, that's not a political statement. That's not Republican or Democrat. That's Bible. I could care less about political parties. I really could. It's Bible. And we've got to say, this is what the Bible says. Which leads to number four. There is the assurance or inevitability of final justice. So even when a society goes wrong or you see just rank evil in the world, things like you know, communism and just tyranny. When you see that kind of evil in the world, uh, we need to understand that final justice will come. We don't have to wonder if the evil get away with it. Look what it says in verse 6 of Psalm 82. I said, you are God, speaking again to the, the, the gods of Israel, uh, I mean the leaders of Israel. You are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God. Look how it ends. Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That's how it's going to end. We've seen the, the brokenness of verse 5, but it ends with God showing his power over all rulers and authority. 
You see, evil rulers, this is so important, will be held accountable. That's what verse 6 and 7 teach us. Evil rulers will be held accountable. He says, hey, you, you, you think you're uh, the rulers of my people and you get away with it? No, you will die. You will fall like any prince. Judgment is coming. Consequences are coming for the evil rulers. That's what that verse says. Hold your place, but turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Boy, this is a striking verse. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, for his hand is stretched out still. Here's what he's saying. There's coming a day where God will judge. He will execute judgment over evil rulers that oppress the poor and the needy and the weak and took advantage of them and lived an, an evil life and reigned in an evil way. God will judge them. And when God judges, the Bible says, where are they going to turn? There'll be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. So evil, evil rulers will be held accountable. And then next, back in Psalm 82, earthly rulers often fail, but God cannot fail. Look what it says in Psalm 82, verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. In other words, when the dust settles, God will, will reign supreme over everyone and everything. In fact, Philippians 2 says that there's coming a time when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going, that day's coming. It's going to happen. So th this day of, of God setting everything right is coming. God cannot fail. You know why? Because God is the perfect ruler. I love Isaiah 33. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it for you. Isaiah 33. You know, we talked about a government, an orderly gov government having um, a legislative and an executive and a judicial uh, aspect to it. Listen to what it says about God in Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. That's judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver. That's legislative. The Lord is our king. That's executive. He will save us. In other words, God perfectly embodies all the elements of rule. He's the perfect ruler. And one day he's going to come and set everything right. He cannot fail. And God will eventually set everything right. He will inherit the nations. Uh, let me show you this. Look over in the book of Amos. It's a minor prophet. We don't read the book of Amos much. He's got some great things to say about the day of justice that is coming where God will set everything right. Amos chapter 5. You've got to use a table of comments, uh, contents. Don't be ashamed. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? 
It is darkness, not light. In other words, if you're on the wrong side of things, you should fear the day when God's going to come back and set everything right. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So there's coming a day when God will set everything right and justice will will perfectly embody his rule and his reign. So, how are we supposed to react when we see evil leadership? How are we supposed to deal with that? Well, there's a prayer in Psalm 82 I want you to see. I want to talk to you about prayer, praying the words of the Bible. Psalm 82, verse 8, look what he says. Arise, O God, judge the earth. Let me tell you a good way for you and I to pray. When we see evil in governments, rulers, those who are in authority, we should pray, arise, O God. Rise up and and do something about it. Amen? God's people should cry out for justice. Martin Luther, again, the great reformer, pointed out that Psalm 82 both establishes and limits the authority of princes. It establishes it because it is God who appoints the authorities, It is he who calls them gods. It limits their authority because they are accountable to him, as the psalm shows. But this psalm ends with the assurance of final justice. Justice is coming. Final justice is coming. No one, you you name any, any evil earthly ruler you want to name, they didn't get away with it. It's coming. It'd be like you standing on the... The beach. And my family, we're beach people. We love the beach. One thing we love about the beach is the waves just keep coming in, right? Would you be able to stand on the beach and say, stop wave? Would the wave stop for you? Absolutely not. The the rolling in of the next wave, listen, is inevitable. And one day God's justice will roll in. And no one will be able to stop it. It is inevitable. That's what Psalm 82 is about. Arise, O God. You will inherit the nations. When it's all said and done, God, you win. Your ways win. Your truth wins. So we need to make sure we're on the right side when that day comes. Amen? There is an aspect of of the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 where people are excited for the return. Why? Because they know Him. They're saved. But if you're not saved... The day of the Lord will be a terrifying, terrifying reality. How can we make sure we're ready for that day? Make sure that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. The Bible says over in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so if, you're not, if you don't have that nailed down today, that you're, that you're truly redeemed, you're truly saved and ready to face God, ready to stand before God, you need to get that settled tonight. In the, in the quietness of your own heart now or on the drive home or sometimes you say, Lord, I need to be saved. Jesus, come to my life. Forgive me. Be my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to be on the right side when it's all said and done. So, back to government. We see the ordination of earthly rulers, the responsibility of human rulers, 
the consequences of ungodly rule, but yet the assurance or the inevitability of final justice. Now, surely I might have some questions from that whole uh, deal. So I'll take some questions before we, uh, before we close tonight. Any questions uh, from Psalm 82? Any questions from Psalm 82? Brendan? Uh, evil rulers be held accountable. Earthly rulers often fail, but our God cannot fail. God is the perfect ruler, and God will eventually set everything right. All right, good deal. Any other questions tonight? Or any questions related to this? Yes, Alvin? Um, well, good question. A couple things, uh, to answer that question. The first thing I would say is, um, I'm not, I'm not sure I would say that a, that a king is the best method of government. In fact, remember when Israel wanted a king, Samuel said, it's not best. He's going to, he's going to take your young men and take your land and he's going to overtax you and he's going to build his kingdom and it's going to be hard. And they said, oh, we want a king like the other nations. And he said, I'll give you what you want, but you need to know it's not best. And if you see what happened, the monarchy went haywire. They divided the kingdoms. It was, it was a mess. So I'm not sure that monarchy is the best. I think the best um, government is a government that, is, that, is, it, that has accountability in place to make sure that legislative functions are happening, just like he says in, in uh, Psalm 82, uh, executive functions and judicial functions. And so if that's being done in a society... Uh, in a in a decent uh, way. Uh, that's why I, I really um, I really appreciate our country's forefathers, uh, the, the brilliance to figure out the branches of government and the checks and balances to make sure those three functions were happening uh, is just really extraordinary. Uh, I read a book uh, years ago now, but it was uh, John Adams and by David McCullough, and he talks a lot about how that happened, and, and it was just amazing how brilliant these folks were that, that can see it. And, and, and a lot of that was driven by biblical ideals and principles, things like we talked about tonight. Um, not all of it, not all of them were Christians that were our founding fathers, but there was a, there was a Judeo-Christian ethic or worldview that was foundational for their thinking. So uh, I, I, that didn't even answer your question. The question was, what do you do if, uh, if you have to choose between two candidates and one says they're a Christian, but they don't, they, don't, they don't stand for what you stand for, or they don't stand for what you believe is right? Yeah. 
Well, first thing I would say is, if someone says they're a Christian, the Bible says you'll know them by their fruit. So the first thing I would say is we don't just go by someone saying, well, I'm a Christian. That's easy to throw that around. I'm a Christian. Um, I believe in God, whatever. Anybody can say that. What is there fruit in their life? And I believe their, their belief system, um, which shows up in their views, would demonstrate if they're the real deal or not. Uh, so I, I, would, I would go beyond just uh, labels that people would throw out there for votes. Um, and I could say a lot more about that, but I won't. Um, um, but I, I think that we have to look at any, any race, any candidate from a biblical perspective and I believe we have to, uh, or we need to, uh, under God's leadership and guidance, vote our conscience. And we want our conscience to be informed by the Word of God. We want our we want our conscience to be informed by what we believe is right or wrong according to the Bible. And we do the best we can. Now, sometimes there, there, the options aren't great, right? Um, but we've got to do the best we can do in our society within the system that we have um, to to get in place what we need to get in place. And and here's one thing I love about our our government, it's always bigger than one race or one person. You've got, you know, you've got the national level, you've got state level, you've got local level. And so we've got to take the big picture in, into consideration. Um, but it is getting, one thing we need to be prepared for in, in the coming days as Christians is the proliferation of races where there's no good option. Where, where both of them have some real issues. It's happening already, and I can give some examples, but I won't go there tonight. But, but uh, we got to be ready for that, and we've got to we've got to uh, try to affect change by the preaching of the gospel. You, you know, uh, uh, this is an interesting quote. I read this: uh, uh, a, a, a government or people in a government are not a reflection of society, or no, they don't they don't uh, form society. Society forms them. So if you have uh, a government system, and you have uh, lots of poor candidates. It's, it's a reflection of your society. So, anyway, yeah, Tom. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of good principles from from people like that, and uh, good things, but. Um, it's going to be. I just think it's going to be increasingly more challenging in the coming days to to find a candidate that that we feel completely comfortable with. I hope so. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, Robert. How the what now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, good word. I, and it, you're calling for active political engagement. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've emailed political officials before and, and uh, gotten responses back and, and things of that nature. And, and uh, I think there's got to be more and more of that in the coming day. Yeah. Yeah. Good word. Anybody else? Any other questions? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right. Amen. Which is what's designed to be. Amen. Amen. And that's the perspective that, and what Sheriff just said is he feels like he's an officer because God put him there. Uh, and he's a, he wants to be a, a servant, not a politician. And, and that's the perspective. That, that's how government was uh, founded to what it's supposed to be. A, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, for the people. So, yeah, yeah. Good word. Good word. I think, yes, sir. Brother Richard. Mm-hmm. Amen. And we need the Holy Spirit for sure, for wisdom in these in these uh, crazy times, for sure. Any other questions tonight? I thought y'all might have a few. Oh, Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Romans chapter one. I think yeah, I think we see a lot of that. I think we see a lot of uh, of uh, because things are so um, have gotten so perverse and so twisted. And by twist, I mean, I remember my dad said to me uh, a few years ago, he said, he said, Wade, he said, he said, I, I, he said, I fear for my grandchildren. He said, everything that's, that used to be called right is now called wrong. And everything that used to be called wrong is now called right, which is, the word perverse means twisted. Everything just, is just twisted upside down. And so, yeah, there are consequences for that. And there, there, is a, a, you know, there are ways that God judges. I mean, God can send hell, fire, and brimstone like he did against Sodom and Gomorrah. Another way that we see him judge, and you're speaking of Romans 1, is just by taking his hand off. His hand of blessing and power and provision and protection, just taking his hand off. And, and you know, we need to pray that God keep your hand on our nation. Take your hand off. You know, and intercede like Abraham did. Yeah. Any other questions tonight? Any other questions? I told you we have it all figured out tonight, right? Good deal, good deal. But isn't it interesting? The Bible speaks to these things, right? Bible, the Bible speaks. So we need to remember that and learn and pray. We need to pray for our nation and be a part of the solution, uh, not the problem, and let our light shine. I mean, ultimately, when it comes to all these different issues, uh, the answer is the gospel. That the gospel is the only thing that changes the human heart, right? I'm not going to argue somebody that's of a diametrically opposed moral position. I'm probably not going to order them to uh, argue them to my views. I mean, maybe one in 10,000, but you know, I'm not going to just argue them to do and believe the right thing. Uh, but the Spirit of God, Brother Richard, the Spirit of God can change the heart. Amen? And so that's why we need to be gospel-preaching people. Um, and, and, and what we've seen in, in America, we've seen two great awakenings uh, when times when America was weak and dark, and things looked bleak. This is not not the first time things looked bleak. Okay, this is this is not uh, not a new deal. 
but God sent a mighty great awakening that literally changed the landscape of our nation. He did it twice, early to mid-1700s and the middle part of the 1800s, and, and it, it changed the trajectory of our nation. So let's pray and ask God to do it again. Amen.